Welcome to the Find Your Awesome podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm your host. I'm an intuitive human design reader, a certified professional coach, and an instigator of joy. And I'm so excited that you're here. This week, I'm talking to Cher Hale. So Cher is a PR agent, and she first reached out to me way back when to pitch one of her clients to the Find Your Awesome podcast. Now, I get a lot of pitches, which is still hilarious to me. The whole podcasting thing is kind of surreal and, and very funny. Uh, so I get a lot of pitches that <laughs> don't resonate. The people, the, the people pitching have not listened to the show, don't know anything about it. And their guests are very much not a match for the show. And then of course there are the in-between people, the in-between pitches that might fit if I do a little research. And then there's a pitch from Cher. My goodness, this woman, the first time I got a pitch from her, it was a game changer. I felt so seen. She had done her homework. She knew about me. She knew about the podcast. She knew about my listeners. And I really felt like she wanted to create a win-win situation. And I pretty much fell in love right then. Working with Cher as she has pitched clients to me has been such a joy. And I always said, if I ever hire somebody to pitch for me, it's going to be Cher. She is authentic. She is grounded. She is inspiring and real and absolutely amazing. So I ended up hiring her and I hired her at first just for a 90 minute session to help me figure out what kind of podcast to pitch to. I was blown away, you guys. This woman, she was absolutely amazing. She gave me so much pure gold in that time. And then I had the honor of reading her human design chart. And what I learned from her human design chart is she is made for what she does. She is here to be an advocate for others. She has the gift of grace and charm. She has the gift of knowing how to say things. She has the gift of turning confusion into gifts. And once I saw all of that, I knew that it didn't make sense to take all the gems that she had given me and pitch myself. That would be essentially getting on the struggle bus compared to the ease of giving giving this task over to someone who was literally born for it. And that's how human design works, you guys. We see what other people are truly gifted at and we say, oh, you do this. I could do this. Yeah. And I might do it pretty well, but oh, wow, you are like super sparkly and shiny and absolutely made for this. So why would I waste my time doing this? This is what you're made for. I'm going to let you do it. I'm going to, I am excited to pay you money to make an energetic exchange so that you can be all the way in your sparkly power and do what you do best. So a little more about Cher. She's the founder and director of Ginkgo PR, a boutique agency that believes in using public relations to amplify the voices of underrepresented and marginalized groups. 
You hear that? She is here to be an advocate for others. Again, she is literally doing what she is here to do. As a Taiwanese Black American woman, Cher is passionate about leveraging the power of media to tell diverse stories through online, print, TV, radio, and podcast mediums so she can play a role in reshaping how our society views social justice, give back initiatives, feminism, and multiculturalism. Holy moly, you guys, you love her already, right? She is amazing. You know what else? You know what I love about humans? So I just told you all that stuff about her. But she's also madly in love with the country of Italy and, and the culture and the language, the Italian language. And she's got a whole podcast devoted to learning Italian and a whole website all about that. We, we humans are just such this magical jumble of talents and interests and passions. And I love us. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I love you. Go forth and be awesome. Okay, Cher, I'm so excited to do this like publicly, like to record a conversation with you. Welcome. Thank you so much. It feels like a long time coming, right? It does. Oh my God. You've been in my orbit for, well, like the life of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Almost. Totally. Yeah. Since the beginning, I would say. I, my first episode was Natalie Egan. Oh, I feel like that was around 60 or something, but I might be totally making that up. Oh yeah. That was way yeah. long ago. Mm-hmm. And I loved it so much. I felt like you were the first person I'd seen in the space who did like such a, an open and transparent narrative conversation with someone who was trans mm-hmm. and it like changed everything for me. Oh, thank you so much. And that was such a cool opportunity for me. I'd gone to high school with Natalie, who was mm-hmm. then Nathan. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was, that was a really powerful experience for me too. Hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So anyway, lately we've been playing continuing to play podcast stuff and playing human design. And it's been a few weeks since we did a reading together and you said that some things have changed. So I want, I want to hear your update, please. Yeah. So as you know, and everyone else will know by the time this goes live too, is I'm pregnant. So life has been shifting quite a lot for me and all of the things that used to work for me had stopped working and I didn't know what to replace them with. Right. So like I've always been almost dictatorial with myself and my time and my business. Um, and after I had the session with you and you were like, you don't need structure. (laughs) What you need is to like decide in each moment what you want to do and then say, not right now, and trust that like later the motivation will come. I sat with that for a few days and I thought, hmm, what would life look like if I did more of what I wanted when I wanted and less of what I didn't want when I didn't want to do it? And so I just tried to experiment and I thought, what, like, this is perfect timing. I'm in my first trimester. I'm like tired all the time. Like, let's just go for it. And I've never been happier <laughs> with my schedule or how of my time. Like I'll pitch in the morning. Sometimes I'll do emails after, and then I'll be like, you know what I want to do is I want to go lay in the sun for an hour mm. and I'll just go do it. And I come back feeling so much better and I'm able to focus so much more intensely. Um, and then I also finish work earlier. So it's just like this lack of structure has created so much more joy in my life. 
um, where before I began to feel like maybe this is a prison that I have created for myself. I love this. And I love the juxtaposition so much with you being pregnant because I can hear so many people being like, oh, but once you have a kid, your time, you won't be able to do that. But maybe you will. Yeah, maybe I will. I think that, so before we had our session, I was not sold on human design. And I had done research for our consultation for PR. um, And I had like begun to see the dots connecting. But after our session, I was just like, wow, I feel so much more permission to be me than ever before. And I think all of the self-help advice I've gotten over the years like the stuff that didn't make sense fell away and the stuff that did stayed, I thought. Um, and so I think that as I go into like this next phase of my life with motherhood, that human design will help me be more present in the best ways possible. Um, because having to check in, like when, when is having chicken like ne- a bad idea, right? Because now I check in constantly. Yes. Like, Do I want to eat this egg? <laughs> no, why not right now? <laughs> or I think like, what I want to do this right now. And it's just, I think, um, I don't know, a much more intuitive way to approach everything. Obviously with a child, I can't be like, no, I don't want to feed you right now. (laughs) I have to, right? Like there are some things, but I think that because of the structure of having a child, um, I'll know I'll have more permission to be flexible when I can be flexible. Mm. Yes. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. And I love your honesty about like totally not being sold on human design before the reading <laughs> and before as, as I sent you the information to prep for our PR meeting, I was like, I know you've been not so into human design, but here's all the stuff I'm sending you and you're about to go down the rabbit hole. So welcome. <laughs> that is exactly what you said in the email. I remember <laughs> word for word. And I remember looking at my chart, listening to you and Tina on an episode, just like discussing the arrows or something like that. And I was thinking, hmm, all this makes too much sense. Mm -hmm. Like, how is it real? Like, this is a weird kind of a magic. Yeah. I mean, that's really how I felt too. My first, my introduction to it, I was like, nah. And then (laughs) it just kept like knocking again and again, like, every few weeks until finally I found myself diving headfirst down the rabbit hole. And I was like, Oh, well, here I am. Welcome home. Apparently. Yeah. And now a year later, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. It was just waiting for me. Mm -hmm. So when we were playing with your design, one of the things I saw so clearly is that you are so living your design career-wise in terms of you are so here to be an advocate for others so strongly and this is where I think it would be amazing before I hire anyone to be able to see their charts and but once I saw yours I was just blown away and and yes that was a major part of me then deciding I need to hire you all the way because you you're literally made for this. Mm. Also really affirming because I think with any position, right, that you choose for yourself, you wonder, you have days where you wonder like, man, (laughs) am I cut out for this? Is this for me? Have I made a terrible mistake? Yeah. And you know, PR comes with so much rejection and so much disappointment where you have those days where you wonder like, 
do I suck at this? <laughs> so, I mean, of course you look at like years of evidence and like, no, you do not suck at this, but it's hard to get past those days when you don't have any kind of other person working with you, right? Like you're just alone doing this most of the time. Um, and so to hear about my gifts of grace and charm, to hear about my, my throat chakra and how all the centers are open, it was just very affirming that like, yes, the bigger mission is here for a reason. So just like keep following that light, no matter how dim it might get. Oh, that is, I love that. Keep following that light, no matter how dim it might get. So how did you fall into, wait, why did I say fall into? How did you, like, because it was an intentional choice, right? How did you get into PR? I actually did fall into it. I think the, the like, spirit was talking to you, right? <laughs> like, I think um, I accidentally enrolled in the wrong class at the wrong campus in college. I was, like, running start in high school. Um so I was in college, high school, and I enrolled at the Cheyenne campus instead of West Charleston. The professor at this campus, so it was too late to drop the class. I went there, and at the end of semester, she was like, would you apply for an internship? I have um, this business that I'm starting on the side, and I have this new book that I'm self-publishing. And so I applied, got it. And she taught me how to do things like mass media lists, cold call producers, back when cold calling was a thing for producers, um, and how to send like customized email templates. And so I did that for a little bit. We ended up landing big spots on like NBC and CNN in New York City. Like she was a first time author, self-published. And I thought, oh my God, you can just ask people to put you on TV and they'll do it. <laughs> like this is amazing. So I took that skill set and I began to pitch sponsorships for podcasters. And Natalie Sisson was my first client to do that with. And she taught me all about digital marketing and passive income streams and like strategic thinking for online business. Um, and that's when I started doing marketing and then eventually PR because my clients kept asking me, Cher, will you pitch podcasts for me? And I said, no, at first, <laughs> hilariously. And then I kept getting pestered and I thought, okay, I'll try it out. And within like six or nine months, it was the number one revenue stream in the business. And it was the number one referral generation in the business. And I thought, hmm, maybe there's something here. And so I started pitching full time for podcasts. And then within a year or so, added on like those traditional services. So editorial, TV, radio, and then speaking gigs most recently. I love, I love how sassy with the universe was for you. So like, yo, 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 this is what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this. Um, and even in the first year of pitching podcasts, I was like, man, this is a stupid idea. And I was charging like next to nothing, right? This is what we do when we start businesses. Um, and like barely surviving and thinking like, could this ever be a thing? And now looking back, I'm like, wow, this couldn't ever have not been a thing. Oh, yes. So let's talk mission. Now that you are, now that you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, what's the thing behind the thing? Why do you do what you do? Yeah. So in that first year and a half of business, um, my clients were <laughs> upper middle class white life coaches um, who had a lot of pretty privilege right? So I was serving the same kind of a person, pitching into the same kind of podcasts and this, like what one of my past clients calls coach Island. 
and um, just feeling really ungratified by the whole process, feeling like, is this what I'm really here to do? I work so hard and I have like so much vision and I think mission in who I am, um, but all I'm doing is pitching for these women who have the same story of, I was sad in my upper middle class life, and so I hired a life coach and I became one. And now I help other women who are also sad in their upper middle class life. And I just thought, share, <laughs> wasting your time. But I did not know how to pivot, right? You're in that like messy middle where you're like, I'm not happy, but I don't know where to go from here. And the bills are being paid this way. So what am I supposed to do? Um, and then my mother passed away unexpectedly at the age of 49. She was super young, um, didn't have any heart problems. It was a heart attack. And obviously, uh, like with any major impactful role in your life, it really shakes you to your core, right? So we were, we were super close. <laughs> she was actually just as obsessed with Italy as I was, if not maybe more. So we had gone on like a mother-daughter trip for six years in a row or annual trip to Italy. And during that whole time, she had been writing romance novels. She would always say, we're going to Italy for research. <laughs> this was like her main line. Um, and then like she would talk to random people and handsome Italian men and get herself into the most bizarre scenarios um, where I would have to inevitably translate on her behalf because she's speak Italian. And um, <clears throat> her dream was to publish these books, this trilogy of novels that she had. And she never got a chance to. And I thought after she died, like, man, there's so much culturally that happened in her life that stopped her from being able to be visible in a really impactful, massive way where she had like the voice and she had the story and she had all the right pieces in place, but she just didn't have the, the privilege or the access um, or the time, quite frankly to make this happen in her lifetime. And I thought, I have this skill set to do all this for people like her. And here I am, quite frankly, wasting it <laughs> on people who don't need the specific perspective or gifts that I have. Um, so why not do something that matters within the time that I have left? So I decided that I wanted to work with people like her and like me, who are multicultural, who have unique perspectives, and who the media has traditionally created stereotypes, negative stereotypes on our behalf for us to control um, a subset of how we think and how we're perceived and who we are as people. And I thought, no more. I can't do this and I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't watch the media take our stories and tell them for us. My job as a publicist can be to take our narratives back and let those people tell their stories for themselves. Anybody who has traditionally been disenfranchised or excluded from the media, so whether that's BIPOC folks, LGBTQIA plus folks, people who are disabled, people with chronic illnesses, anybody who feels like they're not telling their own story, I can help them take that power back with their own voices. And so that's what we've been doing for the past year and a half. And I've never felt more on purpose. Mm. Okay. So hold on. What, 
in your words, what's the difference? What's the, like, why is it more powerful? Why is it necessary for people to tell their own stories versus having other people tell a story for them? There's that danger of a single story. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie has that talk she did. And she talks about how, you know, as Americans growing up, we're taught usually one story about what Africa is like. You know, we're taught that it's impoverished, that they need our help, that we have to go in there with our, our white horses and our swords and like save them, right? Um, but when you look at the reality of Africa, it, it's, it's not true. We're being told one story in the media because the people in power could control that narrative. But when you actually start to talk to people in Africa and hear all of their perspectives, the story becomes much more complex and nuanced and rich. Mm-hmm. And how can we make decisions for ourselves as people or feel confident um, or empowered or I guess, how can, how can we be perceived differently um, if we only have this one story to operate from? And so my goal as a publicist to help them tell their own stories is to add this like rich tapestry to what the reality is in the world, right? Because right now we're getting pieces of the puzzle, but we can't see the full picture. Um, I think that's a great disservice because how can, you know, the media tells us how we vote, you know, how to think about ourselves, what to buy, um, how to raise our, our children. It controls so much of who we think we are as people and how we behave. And if we don't have a full picture of our options, how can we make decisions that feel best for us? Have you published your mom's books yet? I did not. And I'm on the fence about this, actually. Um, They're beautiful, interesting stories. Uh, And I wonder, I wonder if I need to. I don't know yet. There are a lot of work. (laughs) Honestly, we were, we were, I was always like her editor, um, because her first language is Chinese. And so I would go through all of her books and I would help correct and edit and refine. And we got through, I would say most, most of two books. So there's just a lot of work to be done on the third one. Um, and I also like, I don't know, it was her vision. And I can't say for sure that I would like bring her vision to life in the way that she would have wanted it. Uh, she had so many ideas. And I, I do wonder if a lot of the pleasure she got from having created the books was a the creation process, the researching. Um, and also like she would give the book to a few of her closest friends and be like, hey, I wrote this book. Will you read it? And I think getting the feedback from them while she was alive was really gratifying for her. And so I don't know if she wants anything else from me. Mm. What was your mom's name? Teresa. Mm. I just want to send a whole lot of love to her. <laughs> Into her big dreams and the magic that you two created as you're playing and like exploring Italy together. Oh my gosh, so much fun. What a gift. Mm-hmm. What an incredible experience to just to do that with your mom and to see her so lit up about something and to see the birth of something through her eyes. Yeah, I often wonder, you know, she waited until she was in her 40s to 
to do things that were solely for herself. And I often wish she'd done them sooner. You know, mothers wait a long time to do what we want. And I think it's a shame. Most people would say she was only in her 40s. She had plenty of time. Also jarring, right? Yeah. Because we thought, I thought maybe I have 20 more years with her. Minimum. Yeah. And you just don't know. No. We have no idea. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like her sudden exit from this world was just the slap you needed to make the pivot that you needed to be who you're supposed to be in this world. Yeah, I would agree. And I would say as much as I miss her here physically, I've never felt closer to her. How does that show up for you? Like, what does that mean? (sighs) I guess it means that I come to her more often uh, for advice (laughs) than I ever had before. Um, I talk to her more often. I feel more connected to our heritage than I had ever previously shown interest in, right? Like I would eat the food and be like, thanks for the food. (laughs) Would never really care about learning to cook it or understanding um, why we use specific ingredients or like how, how they worked. And now that she's gone, I find myself searching for the snacks she used to like. The ones that she used to eat with, she used to eat with tea or um, the, the order of ingredients she used for this specific recipe for sesame ginger chicken. Um, and I find myself reconnecting with heritage through fruit, like through food and reconnecting with her through food um, and also throughout the language, through Mandarin. So I find that like every time I, I'm learning the language and I hear or learn a word that she used to say or like it comes to my mind, I think, oh, this is a piece of the puzzle that I can put together of like memory. Mm. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, was your, did your mom speak Mandarin around you? A little bit. I would say that she wanted me to be super American. <laughs> so she didn't like push it on me. And also because my father was still in Taiwan, we weren't like a, there it wasn't a dual speaker household. She spoke English my father. And so it wasn't an environment where you get a lot of like input. And as a child, you need a ton of input, right? To have that second language reinforced. Yeah. So what's it like trying to learn Mandarin now? Oh my God. I've been trying to learn Mandarin my whole life, (laughs) right? Like, so when you're a kid, she taught me like the numbers, greetings, the names of food and stuff like that. And so I had that growing up. Um, I also had like little like um, workbooks for filling out the characters and all of that stuff. But I found that through elementary school, middle school, and high school, and even college, Chinese always felt like an obligation to me. And there was always a lot of shame attached to it. Because so my father was still in Taiwan. We never had a relationship. And so I always felt like, ma'am, if I learn Chinese, then I'll have to pursue a relationship with all of these people that I don't know. And like, can I even do that? And, but if I don't learn Chinese and I'm not like the good Asian girl I'm supposed to be, like the filial child that, you know, you read about in like almost all Asian um, narratives. Uh, so I think all of like the, the confusion around heritage and being American also um, was always a blocker for me. But after getting pregnant, I thought learning Chinese 
feels easy now because it's a way for me to give my child a piece of who we are in a very homogenous area in the world. Um, and so it, it no longer feels like an obligation. It feels more like a gift mm. that I can give. And it's the right time now. Yeah. And thankfully you have that little foundation, mm-hmm. which I imagine it's got to be at least a little easier having some words and knowing the characters. Yeah, I would say that if I were to watch a Taiwanese drama, which I do, I can understand about 50% without the captions. That's solid. Yeah, it's it's decent. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so this story you had that if you learned Chinese, you would have to have relationships with all these people you didn't know. What, what's, like, what's up with having relationships with people you don't know? What was the thinking there? I guess I was, like, always a really shy kid. Mm-hmm. And Taiwan just felt so foreign to me. So we, we went twice when I was six and when I was 14. Um, and my mother naturally was a translator. And she, like, led the excursion. I, I let her do that. And I tried a little bit. But, you know, I was super American, just like she wanted me to be. <laughs> so I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and so I think it was more like I wasn't great with maintaining or building family relationships my in my adolescence and so I thought how could I add on these other people <laughs> and like maintain a connection or like maintain a network I just didn't think I had the skill set and now what's your viewpoint on family connection having moved around a lot and having had to start over a lot I would say that like family is who you make it And I would say that you don't have to talk to someone often to have a connection with them. Uh, So I just think that I had a lot of convoluted ideas about what it meant to be a family. Mm -hmm. Um, And having gone through all that I've gone through at this point in my life, uh, it feels a lot easier to reach out and just say, hi, (laughs) I'm thinking of you and have that be enough Uh, and have it be less complicated than what I formerly envisioned that it had to be. How do you say hi in Mandarin? Ni hao. Ni hao. But a lot of them just say hi, (laughs) honestly. (laughs) That's so disappointing. No, I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) When it's the one word you finally Mm -hmm. know. Yeah. All right. Well, you'll have to teach me more, please, going forward. Not before Italian. (laughs) No. Now I want to talk about Italian. So we both were lucky enough to study abroad in Italy, you more recently than me. And you've been staying on top of your Italian. But let's talk about your love affair with Italy. Where do you want to start? (laughs) What was it like when you got off the plane the first time? Disorienting. Did you fly into Rome? We flew into Rome. I was very sweaty. (laughs) I remember I I was very sweaty when I arrived too. Yeah, I believe it was... (laughs) The end of July or beginning of August, I think. Um, so I was very sweaty. And I remember feeling just like, is this real? Like we Obviously, we traveled, we traveled for like 16 hours, right? So it's like, you're tired. Um, my friend who I'd come with was ill. She had like had, got a flu shot. She had the flu. So I'm taking care of her. <laughs> it was just like a lot going on at once. And then there's all these new students who you don't know yet. 
So I, as my like little introverted self at that age, what was I, 21, it was overwhelming for sure. That's, I remember getting off the plane, being one of the tallest people in the airport. Oh my gosh. Because I'm like just under six feet, uh, being very sweaty, being very tired. And then my mom, there were no other students there. My mom is a travel agent and she is brilliant. And she had been like, I'm going to book a car for you to get you to the villa. Good woman. Oh, I pr- I'm sure I told her, mom, I don't need it. Mom, I don't need it. Mom. And I hope I've told her enough times that I'm so grateful for her brilliance because yeah, there is this little Italian man who is holding a sign with my name and I just went and then I arrived at this beautiful Italian villa <laughs> where I lived for four months. Yes. I think you had a much more fluid experience than I did. We like all got on a bus together and a hot sweaty bus and then like drove the two hours. It might've been a little shorter because we were by bus um, up to the Terrible, which is where we would live for the next four ish months. So did you know Italian before you went? I had taken two semesters of Italian and I would say that I did not know it before I went. I think learning in the classroom uh, was such a disembodied experience for me. Mm-hmm. I actually did not like it. And I wondered, like, is this a good idea that I should go? But I'd also been doing Michelle Thomas tapes. I don't know if you are familiar with that method. No. But I've been doing that on the side. And I felt like that gave me the best foundation for what I was walking into. <laughs> but I still wasn't nearly as prepared as I thought I was. So I think I was much more confident um, walking in. And then I remember our very first stop in Viterbo, I was starving, naturally, always hungry. So I take my friend, walk into this cafe, and I'm looking at the menu, and I realize that I have to speak Italian. I'm going to get food. (laughs) And I used the words that I knew, and I ordered something I didn't know I didn't know what it was and I was too embarrassed to ask, but I just needed food. And so I got this Bresaiola salad. It was delicious, but like it arrived and I thought, okay, fine. I'm just going to eat it. Gave the guy 20 euro, which is about 15 euro too much <laughs> for the meal. So I had no idea what he told me in terms of the price. Um, and sat and ate my meal and wondered, okay, this is for real now. I really have to up my game. And then did you have Italian classes as part of your program? Yeah, I believe we had um, like one grammar class and then like one conversation class. It was structured kind of like this, if I remember correctly. But God, it's been, it's been years, right? <laughs> I forget. Yeah. We had one. I didn't take Italian before I went. Mm. It was, I feel like that class was offered at weird times or some, there was some reason. Um, I couldn't take it. And so we had Italian class in our program and our teacher was Romanian. He didn't speak any, he spoke some French. And so I knew French. And so those of us who knew French in class could ask him questions in French. And that's how we learned Italian. Honestly, most of your Italian experience sounds like it's in a novel. (laughs) It sounds like that's totally made up. It feels like it is when I talk about it. And if you had the images in your head that I have, like this place, I told you before we started recording, we had a chef who was also an opera singer who would sing while he cooked. The food was amazing. 
um, there were frescoes in like all of the, all of the rooms where we had classes. Stunning. I mean, you were in a villa. We were in a villa. There was a garden in the villa that had all these beautiful statues in it. Um, there was this like ancient urn in my bedroom, the room I shared with a few other. Of course there was. Of course. The whole thing was like, we for real? Right. So you were outside of Florence, but you often went into the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in Sesto Fiorentino, so six miles outside of Florence. I forget the bus line that went directly into downtown. Um, but there was, it was, a, it's a small town. So we got to like do our shopping and stuff if we ever needed to shop in the town. There was a mountain mm-hmm. in the town and um, I would go during siesta and hike the mountain every day and I met of course you a bunch of locals <laughs> doing that yeah I can see that so in Florence did you have like a favorite thing to do in the city oh I think it was something different always hmm. well, ideally for me I always wanted to like no we haven't been down this street I need to go exploring down here oh the alleyways in Italy are just like you always Unreal. discover something. It's like, for me, going down Italian alleyways is like going around a corner in the forest, on like a oh, hiking yes. trail. It's like, oh mm-hmm. my God, I got to see what's around this one. <laughs> totally. Like the cute little cobblestone steps. I used to love little staircases. Like, where does this one go? I loved doorways. Mm-hmm. I still love doorways. Yeah. My mother was obsessed with doorways. We have, we have so many, hundreds of photos of doorways. <laughs> I have quite a few as well. <laughs> So you took this Italian adventure and created a business out of it. I did. It was at a pivotal time in my life where I knew I did not want to work in a company. And I was working like an internship slash online job with Natalie Sisson, who at the time was the suitcase entrepreneur. Um, And she was a great role model for me to watch, to see how do you run an online business? How do you build it from the ground up? And how do you like amass an audience? And so I thought, hmm, two birds, one stone, right? Like I really want to keep learning Italian, but when you go home, it's so hard to keep a routine or a structure or foundation without accountability. And I also want to like try this online business thing. So like, what if I just did both in one? And the iceberg project was, uh, the idea came from one of my communication classes while in Italy, because the theory is that like, right, you can only see the tip of the iceberg, but below it, it's like the culture of the people. It's their values. It's who they really are. It's how they operate. And I thought without the language, you have no access to the bottom of the iceberg. Mm. The language is like the bridge you walk to get there, to like really get to deeply know the people and the culture. But without it, all you have are like, what you see on the surface, right? Their clothes, how they look, the language, how it sounds, what they're eating. Um, also, that's like great as a tourist, but I wanted to be more than a tourist. What I thought of as you're talking about that is there are some phrases that are just, they embody so much culture, like va bene. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, how do we translate that? Okay. So many ways, right? Yeah. It's like, good, great, okay, fine. Well. Exactly. And it's yet, it's, it embodies Italian culture for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like, allora. Everyone's obsessed with the word allora. Mm-hmm. I know Liz Gilbert made a big deal out of it in her book. <laughs> she was like, 
this is like the most magical Italian word. And it, you know, it, it does, it shows a lot about who they are as people or a la bella figura to have like, to make a good impression. It's a super Italian and you won't know about it until you're like walking the passeggiata at like 6 PM, right about the Peritivo time. And you're like, ah, I see this is la bella figura. Mm-hmm. Um, even domani hearing, yeah. hearing, oh, I forget what I was trying to do something in town. Domani, Domani, Domani. Totally. (laughs) Learn. Like it, but it, that's part of the culture. The culture isn't a right now. It isn't a culture of hustling. No. No, I can't do it. No, I think at that time of my life, I was a super hustler. I was just like hungry to learn, hungry to earn. And Italy just helped me chill the F out. (laughs) Like it just helped me slow down and like appreciate good cheese and good focaccia and like cheap wine. It was the perfect time to learn those lessons in my life. Yeah. How was it different when you kept going back with your mom? Mm, It felt less structured. So I went back six years in a row to visit and we would stay for typically a month at a time. So we got plenty of time to like get to know people in the, in the neighborhood. We often went back to the same towns. Um, so we had a lot of like memory. We weren't obviously residents in any way, but we had a lot of memory of like the places where we like to go. Um, so it began to feel like a routine in the, the best way possible. But then I moved to Rome. I don't know if I told you this. I moved mm-hmm. to Rome for three months uh, after leaving Las Vegas at 25. And without having any kind of structure for school or a job, um, so I worked from home, it was really tough to like find my footing in Rome. Uh, and also, you know, like I'm very obviously Asian and Italians are not the most inclusive of people. Um, to their credit, like they they have a heavy tourist population, right? So this is normal. And they have a lot of people from China coming in as immigrants. Um, so there's a lot of, I would say, like tension between the Asian community and the Italian community in Italy. And so I never felt like I really belonged, which is how I always feel, right? Like growing up, Taiwanese American, Taiwanese Black American, and then like going to Italy being like, these are my people. I'm like, no, they're not your people, share. <laughs> Just because you like get along and like understand does not mean that you belong here. And so it was um, an interesting time of figuring out where I belong and where I wanted to, to put down roots. What was your answer to that? Where do you belong? Here. <laughs> so I tried, um, after Rome, I moved to Quarter Lane, Idaho, uh, which hilariously also has no diversity. And <laughs> lived there about a year until I met my, my current partner who lives like 30 minutes west in Spokane. And that's where we live now. And I feel like the best possible place. It's like four seasons. It's beautiful. Um, there's a bit more diversity in Spokane. There are like three Asian markets as opposed to none in Coeur <laughs> Like, you know, we're moving up in the world, but it also kind of feels like the town where I grew up in, in Michigan, um, where as a child, I was like one of the only Asian kids. And now thinking raising my child here I'm like this is hilarious that I'm, I chose a homogenous population to raise my like half Asian child in uh, so I made this my home is what I would say is an answer mm. you know it's interesting I feel like some of us we hear this cultural call to belong and be surrounded by people who are like us and yet 
some of us in some ways are more comfortable when we're standing out. Absolutely. I think I don't, I don't have any recollection of being in a place where I actually felt like I can blend in or get by. Um, even in Taiwan, right? In Taiwan, I'm an ABC. I'm an American-born Chinese. Yep. And I don't look Taiwan, look Filipino. <laughs> so it's just like, even in, even in a place where like everyone's Asian, <laughs> I still don't fit in. So like, what's the point of trying so hard? Mm-hmm. Um, so places where I do stand out, it's, they feel like home. I feel like there's so much wisdom in that statement. Let's dig into the last couple questions, which of course may lead to other questions. We'll see. Uh, no plan here. <laughs> What's the scariest thing you've ever done? Ooh. I would, gosh, I would say move here was one of them. Um, but I also think like saying yes to having a child when I wasn't really planning on having a child yet has been terrifying. <laughs> In like the most enlightening way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You're on such a wild journey right now. Yeah, there's so much more for you to come. <laughs> and and how will you approach that fear? Reading exercises. <laughs> I just read a really good book called Breath. It's all about yeah. breathing. It's fascinating. It's it's really well written. So. Maybe that I would say there's a lot of like um, asking for help, journaling and breathing, um, letting go of things I can no longer control. So there's just a lot of growth. I think the best way that I've ever approached fear is through growth. Mm -hmm. And uh, courage and bravery, I would say, from the outside looking in. It sounds like you've been practicing bravery for a while. That's funny. It doesn't feel that way, but I can definitely see the threads. It never feels Every, that way for the person doing no, it. No, I think all the choices I made, I felt like I had to make them, mm-hmm. right? It felt like imperative to make sure that like I keep doing what I needed to be doing. Like when I was living in Las Vegas, I just felt so empty, like dry, like the desert. And I thought, I have to leave this place. It doesn't matter where I go, but I have to leave. And so it didn't feel optional. Yeah. So you felt like you had to do these things because your soul was like commanding you. Yeah. To be you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Following the breadcrumbs, they say. Mm-hmm. Okay. So imagine that you have a billboard and you can put it anywhere you want. But, and everyone in the world can see it. Mm-hmm. What does it say? Ooh, it gets very like Marianne Williamson inspired. It's like love and then the greater than symbol over fear. Uh, how many colors are involved? Because I feel like there's a design aspect to this. <sighs> I feel like very, very tasteful chic we have like a bold background or like a bold font um i don't know where it just like you can't not see it right it's not too busy i'd mm-hmm. say it's, it's pretty like classic i love it what does it mean to you mm, it means that in every choice i make i have a choice to choose love over fear um it means that like in a moment where i can like yell at my partner <laughs> 
I can stop and breathe and think about what's really happening for me under the surface. And maybe I should bring that up with him instead of yelling at him. Maybe I should tell him, actually, I'm upset because I'm really scared. Hmm. And to, to drive decisions with this kind of vulnerability or transparency first before I rush to judgment or anger. Yes. Cher, you are an amazing human and I am so grateful for everything that you have done and been and that you are and that you say and your wisdom and your brilliance and your skills and that you're living your design. Thanks for being in my life. Thank you for being in mine. Without your human design magic, I would feel less like me. So I really appreciate you. I am so happy that you feel like you. That just makes my heart really full. So if people want to know more about you, the Iceberg Project You and the PR Project You, like where can they get more share? Yeah, if you want to learn Italian, if you're like really into that sort of thing, you can go to the icebergproject.co forward slash Italian and you can find literally years of archives. <laughs> of lessons and musings and all kinds of um, appreciation for Italian culture. And if you are like, hey, will you be my publicist? You can find me at Ginkgo Public Relations and that's G-I-N-K-G-O, Public Relations. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. You guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Go check out Cher at ginkgopr.com and theicebergproject.co. And if you want to get a human design reading with me, it's time. Let's do it. Go to kelseyabbott.com slash human design and choose your own adventure. I am so excited to work with you. You are a miracle. You are magical. I hope you have an absolutely positively amazing day. I love you, go forth and be awesome.